Bibles once again, <clears throat> and open up to the book of Joshua, we'll continue to look at how it is we build a battle-ready faith in our own lives. Joshua chapter 5. Father God, we do thank you for just the opportunity to worship uh, you this morning. And God, we know we continue to worship as we look at your word, and we ask that the Spirit would be free to work in our hearts and minds today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're uh, picking up our story in Joshua, and the people are now over in the Promised Land. They have miraculously crossed the Jordan River, and it was at that immediate point that God uh, uh, tested their heart-level commitment to Him uh, through the uh, ceremony of circumcision and the celebration of the Passover feast. Well, there was one other significant event that happened uh, right after that that we just didn't have time to look at last week, so I want to start with that this morning. Um, uh, after the, the people of Israel had accomplished those two things, uh, they, they had some other major event happen to them in their life. They had spent the last 40 years, you know, wandering in the wilderness uh, while that older, unbelieving generation died off. But prior to that, we have uh, Moses leading the people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai where they received the Ten Commandments and other laws and instructions and did that kind of stuff. Well, that is, a, is, is about a three-month-long journey when you're talking that many people camping and you're not going to get very far every day. And about six weeks into that journey, all the food that these guys had taken with them from Egypt ran out. And so the people did what they were best at doing. They began grumbling and complaining. And uh, they started whining to God and they said, oh man, you brought us out here in the middle of the wilderness to die. We had plenty of bread back in Egypt and, and they were going on like this. Well, God in his graciousness and his mercy uh, provided food for them every single morning. And Exodus 16 describes it this way, that God had, you know, caused this heavy dew to fall on the ground. And then verse 14, when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Okay, so that's their initial appearance as they're coming out of their tent in the morning and they see this white all over the ground. Well, once they had a chance to, to gather it up and, and take a closer look at it, it's described this way in verse 31. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Okay, now manna, by the way, you know, if you thought that's what God called it, that's what they named it, and manna just means, what is it? That's the question, and, and they're out there, you know, and, and, and doing that. Well, this stuff, you know, it, it could be boiled up into a porridge or it could be baked into bread, but in this way, uh, God provided food for them every morning or six, six mornings out of the week. On the, on the Friday morning, they were supposed to gather twice as much so they had enough for the day of rest, the, the Sabbath day on Saturday, so they wouldn't gather any on that day. And uh, God did this for them the entire time while they were heading to Mount Sinai and while they were camped at Sinai, doing all the things that were commanded there. And then throughout this 40 years of judgment in, in, in the wilderness, right up until they came into the promised land. 
And then we read this in Joshua 5.11. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, of unleavened cakes and parched grain. Okay, now they had unleavened uh, bread because part of the Passover ceremony that they had just celebrated requires that you remove all leaven from your house. And since they couldn't just run uh, down to the store to grab new leaven, they had to make their own, which take, took a day uh, to do. And so they had unleavened bread even on the next day. But, but the point is, they were now eating produce from the land of Canaan, the promised land. And then look at what verse 12 says. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of Canaan during that year. So now, think about it. Most of these people would have never known a time when manna didn't fall from heaven. As far as they knew, God provided food like this from heaven every morning. But you see, that was God's gracious provision in a time of very desperate need, right? Uh, unprecedented need. When you're wandering around in the wilderness with this many people, there's no way you can produce crops to feed your family and yourself. And so they were without any resource. And so God provided for them. But now, now that they were in the land, they would go back to getting food the normal way, which means through the hard work of planting and cultivating and harvesting. And, and, and that hard work is just as much a part of God's provision and plan as the manna was from heaven during those 40 years. And I think, you know, there's a pretty simple lesson in that uh, for us this morning. Uh, the normal way that God works is through the normal means that He has given us, right? Hard work, diligence, perseverance. And that's true no matter what we're talking about. Whether you're talking about feeding your family, making a living, or growing and maturing as a Christian, or developing some new skill to be able to employ in God's service, or dealing with a, a cold or a, a other sickness. Yes, occasionally, God provides supernaturally. But usually, He provides through the natural mechanisms that He has set up for us to use. God never intended for us to just sit back in our easy chairs and wait for the things we need to fall out of heaven into our lap. He expects us to work. So if you're praying for God to do something in your life right now, my question to you would be this. What normal mechanisms that God has set up are available for you to use and to work at while you are praying? I mean, it could be that God's provision for you is going to be through those normal mechanisms and not by some divine miracle. If you're praying for a job, what applications are you turning in? If you're wondering what college you should go to, which ones have you been looking at? If you're seeking a deeper faith with God, what have you been doing to develop that? If you want boldness to share about Christ in your life, 
Have you been seeking opportunities to share? If we simply sit in, in our living rooms in the easy chair and just wait for God to drop these things in our lap, we're going to miss a great deal that God has for us. If those people, after the, the manna ceased, said, oh no, there's no more manna, now what do I do? Well, how about work for your food? That's how we set it up. That's what God wants us to do. That's the normal mechanisms. God in His love and grace, He provides for us. But one of the ways He provides is through the things that He has set up for us to use. So, pretty simple lesson. Let's, let's move on with the story now. Look at verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man standing there opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? So have you ever been watching a a scary movie and you know something's about to happen? Right? I mean, you can always tell uh, because, uh, you know, the music shifts into a minor key and, and gets, uh, uh, gets uh, you know, uh, uh, tense and scary and, and you know something's going to happen. So let's say you're watching this movie and here's this guy. He's walking through the woods all alone at night with a fog rolling in. And he is tense and he is sweating and he is looking in every direction because he knows that he's in a dangerous situation and anything out of place he wants to try to see. And so he is scanning the horizon at all times. And then for one instance, he, he looks down to see what he's going to do for his next step. And when he looks up, there's a guy standing right in front of him and it just freaks you out every time. It scares you, right? That's the indication of what happened to Joshua here. That's what this verse is saying. That he looked up and all of a sudden, here's this guy. And, and, and uh, it, it would be a, a scary situation. I mean, here, this warrior standing there. And, and you, know, you have to know, Joshua was a pretty brave guy. Because here he is going out by Jericho all alone, right? And, and remember, that's four miles away. He's four miles away from his camp, from any support, from any help. From any reinforcements, he's out there alone. So you know there was a bravery in that, but uh, apparently uh, he wanted to get closer to Jericho uh, to find out what was going on for himself. And he had to know that the king of Jericho was going to have eyes and ears out, right? He was going to have patrols. He was going to have guards out in the woods. So Joshua would have been carefully watching for all of these things. But because he wanted to go get a look, Uh, at at that Jericho because he knew Jericho was the first key cog that had to fall in order for them to have success in in their conquering of the promised land. And and so he's up there desperately seeking ideas on how they can go about overthrowing this Canaanite stronghold. How could they possibly do it? What would be the strategy that they would use? And so he's sneaking up to get a closer look, uh, you know, with these thoughts going through his mind. And you have to know he was carefully watching for the enemy that would be out there. And so when this guy all of a sudden pops up in his field of vision, it had to be startling. And this person already had his sword drawn. That's what it says. I mean, that'd be threatening. That doesn't give you a good feeling. But Joshua did not cower or shrink back in fear. In fact, it says he, he boldly went up to him and basically said, okay, whose side are you on, friend or foe? 
And Joshua was ready to fight this guy, not knowing who he was or where he came from, depending on whose side he was on. And if it was a Jericho soldier, soldier, I mean, he had to know that there was a good chance that there would be a lot of other ones out there around him. This guy would have had reinforcements available to him. But he did not uh, allow that to cause him to back down. So he, he was definitely a courageous leader. And I'm guessing that he had the command and the encouragement that God had given him back in chapter 1 firmly rooted in his mind. When God said to him, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, he was putting into practice what God had commanded of him. And I think that in and of itself is another great lesson for us this morning. How many commands of God do we know, but we're not living by them or putting them into practice. I, I sometimes get concerned that our Bible studies outpace our Bible practice. We keep learning and gaining more and more knowledge, but are we allowing what we learn to transform our lives? Are we taking what we learn and letting it inform the way we live? I mean, take this idea of being courageous. We don't normally think of being courageous as something that you can command, right? I mean, he says, have I not commanded you? And a command is something you can either do or not do. And we tend to think of, uh, of uh, courage as either something you happen to have or don't have. But God commanded it in Joshua, and we see it in Joshua. So what was his courage based on? Couldn't have been in his own self or his abilities. It was not in his circumstances that he was facing in life, right? Especially right now, as he was looking at leading a bunch of minimally trained, unexperienced farmers-turned-soldiers against this well-fortified city of Jericho with its trained and standing army. I mean, circumstances were not on his side. But Joshua could choose to be courageous because he was basing that choice on a promise from God. That's what the for clause is in that statement, right? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's that's why you can be strong. That's why you can be courageous. And any courage and any boldness that we need in this life is ours because we have that same promise that the Lord, your God, is with you. We have the Holy Spirit living right within us and and the power of the Son of God dwelling within us. God is always with us in a closer, more intimate way than Joshua was ever able to experience. And you notice this particular command, it has not only the positive, right, be courageous, but it also addresses the negative, do not tremble or be dismayed. Now, what do you think? Did Joshua have any reasons at all to tremble or be dismayed? Well, yeah, he, he certainly did. But it was part of the command not to. 
And because he believed and trusted in God's promises, which of course means he believed and trusted in God himself, he was able to allow that command to be courageous to dictate his life and guide his actions. So instead of trembling and being dismayed when he faced this man with a drawn sword, he acted courageously. He, he, he went up to him and, and did what he needed to do just as God had commanded. So let me ask you what might be a bit of a, a penetrating question this morning. Does your knowledge of the Bible go beyond your obedience of the Bible? Now, I understand that we all stumble and fall at times. That's not what I'm referring to. What I'm talking about is as a general pattern for your life. Or put it in a more positive way like this. Are the promises of God that you know from Scripture, are they transforming your life? Are they what are guiding your choices and your decision, your decisions? I mean, just like Joshua God commands us to be courageous and to not tremble or fear what life may throw at us. And it's based on His promise to be with us. Or God tells us not to worry based on His promise that He'll meet our needs. He tells us not to fear what man can do to us Uh, because nothing they can do will hurt or change the relationship that He has with us or deprive us of the eternal good and well-being that He has promised us in eternity. And God tells us to set our minds on things above and and not on the things uh, of earth, that we are to, to focus on the eternal spiritual realities of life because He knows the things of this earth cannot satisfy, but He has promised that in Him we will find complete satisfaction in everything. And, and we could go on and on with this, you know, the, the, the commands of God and the corresponding promises that He's given us, but I suspect that we know a great many of them. So the question is, are we being like Joshua in implementing them, trusting God in these things? Because that's how we build a battle-ready faith. And we know that we can trust God in these things because His character has proven that He will always keep His word. So when He tells us to do one thing based on this promise that He has given us, we know that we can do that because He's proven it. So Joshua, in this dangerous situation, boldly goes and confronts the man. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? So let's look at how this guy answers his question. Verse 14, he said, No, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the hosts of the Lord. Now from this answer, Joshua immediately knew, Whoa, this is no ordinary man or soldier. And so look at how he responded. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? See, Joshua immediately bows down, pays homage to this man, asks him, okay, what do you want from me? And and what does he want him to do? His first request is not necessarily what we would have expected. Look at verse 15. 
the captain of the Lord of hosts said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. (laughs) First thing, first and foremost, that's what he wanted Joshua to do. So who exactly was this man? I know there's a lot of people that just assume or think that he was some high-ranking angel because, you know, the hosts of the Lord, that's his angelic army, and this guy was a captain of that, and he was in charge of that. But we know that can't be right because an angel would never expect or encourage worship to himself. He wouldn't accept worship from a man. When when the apostle John encountered an angel, he, he did the same thing is Joshua falling on his face. At the end of the book of Revelation, uh, John writes, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the warnings, the words of this book. Worship God. An angel always directs man's worship to God. Well, since this person confronting Joshua accepted worship, that can mean only one thing, that this was a visible, tangible manifestation of God himself in human form. It's what scholars call a theophany. And some say that perhaps it was Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate form, taking on a body to, to meet Joshua. Others say it was God the Father himself doing that. But since, you know, the two are one, it really doesn't make any difference. The point is this was God appearing to him in physical form. And the only appropriate response when you see God is worship and reverence, which is what's behind the idea of removing uh, the sandals. I mean, just the same thing God told Moses when he appeared to him in the burning bush, right? Remove your sandals, you are on holy ground. So Joshua's meeting with God. So now let's go back and look at God's initial answer when Joshua asked him his question, are you for us or for the enemy? And God's first word was no. No? That doesn't even answer the question. You know, some of our Bible translations have taken that Hebrew word no and instead they've used the implication that was behind it and therefore translated that way as neither. Are you for us or for the enemy? Neither one. Well, if this is God, who obviously is an advocate of Israel, right? And and who would actually fight on their behalf as we're going to see next week. Why does he answer Neither. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you would have thought he would have right. Hey, Joshua, man, oh yeah, you bet. We're in this together. I'm on your side. Why does he answer neither one? Well, I think, I think he's making an important point to Joshua, therefore to us. See, it was not for Joshua to claim the allegiance of God for his cause, but rather for God to allow Joshua to be on his side. And there is a difference, isn't there? I think we as humans have a tendency to want to claim that God is on our side. 
uh, you know, we have a political party uh, that we affiliate with and we claim that God is on our side or we have a church affiliation that we adhere to and we claim that God is on our side or we have a particular worldview on a specific subject like say creation and we want to claim that God is on our side. And God is saying here, that's not the way it works. You've got it backwards. It's not about me being on your side. It's about you being on my side. And now we understand Joshua's position, it was right. I mean, God definitely was for Israel. Israel was following God's command by coming into the promised land and and preparing uh, to to attack uh, Jericho. That's what God had told them to do. And God most definitely was fighting for Joshua and Israel. So see, it's not a matter of how right your position might be. It's a matter of having the right perspective about it. When we say, well, God's on my side, we're elevating ourselves and our position. But when we say, like Joshua, that we are on God's side, we are humbling ourselves and taking our orders from Him. Like Joshua, we fall on our face in worship, we remove our sandals in reverence, and we ask the most important question of all. What has my Lord to say to His servant? That's what we ask when we're on God's side. That's how God wants us to approach our relationship with Him. And once again, as is always the case with God, it's, it's a matter of our heart position and perspective. To be on God's side means it's not about you. It's not about your agenda. It's not about your plans, your programs, your ideas. It's about whatever God has called you to do. So if you're here this morning and somehow you still think that you're in charge of your life, And you want God to be on your side in terms of what you plan and what you're doing? Well, then you need to have a meeting with the captain. And the captain's going to say, no, you need to be on my side. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for these lessons that we can learn from your word, for the experiences of these men and women of God who have gone before us. And God, it is so easy for us to elevate our position and, and uh, want to claim that you're on our side, but God, the important truth is we need to be on your side. And we need to be servants who are asking the question, what would you say to me? What would you have me do so that we can live our lives accordingly? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever wondered why Joshua had to have this encounter prior to 
Jericho is because God's plans are far different than any military leader would ever set up. We'll look at that next week.